Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parity Magazine, available on the link accompanying the podcast. That magazine and this series give voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the front line, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming, and I'm delighted to introduce our host, John Willis, who leads the inclusive health team for St. Vincent's Health Australia. John will introduce our guest in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, both John and our guest will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks, Dan. My wonderful pleasure to welcome Cameron French, the manager of Tierney House, part of the Homeless Health Services at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Um, lovely to have you on the podcast series, Cam. How are you? I'm very well, John. Thanks for having me. No, pleasure, mate. Look, we've spoken to a few of your colleagues at the Homeless Health Service in Sydney, but we haven't heard much about Tierney House, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. So you're a service that's been providing um, a service to homeless people in the inner city Sydney area for, since 2012, and you're a residential service, but you're connected to the hospital. So to begin with, can you tell us why Teeny House was established and what services you provide? Yeah, I believe a survey was done in the emergency department of people presenting there back about two years prior to Teeny House uh, becoming operationalised, and there was about eight to nine people a day presenting who were identifying as experiencing homelessness. Um, of those eight to nine people, the majority were presenting for things that uh, were not considered an emergency department type presentation. Um, mm. Often these people were uh, desperate, absolutely desperate, and the ED was seen as a bit of a safe haven, somewhere to go when you literally didn't have somewhere to sleep. Maybe you were feeling a bit paranoid. Maybe you were coming down uh, and experiencing mm. the horrors. And people would head to that emergency department as a, as a safety beacon, um, which is not an ideal use of such an area of the hospital. Secondly, they identified that people were coming back for a health issue that had not resolved itself. So, mm. for an example, a really quick example would be you might present there with a case of cellulitis, a skin infection, which you can go to your GP for and, and have some antibiotics and maybe a bit of wound care, keep it clean, and it will repair itself. However, when you go to the emergency department and are given those antibiotics and some wound care appointments and then go back to rough sleeping, you don't finish that course of antibiotics, you lose them, somebody assaults you and steals them, or you lose your appointment card. Therefore, mm. that cellulitis is not getting any better, and when it flares up to a painful state again, where do you go? Back to the emergency mm. department. So mm. the powers that be in Sydney identified that period, you know, two weeks post-hospital admission, as a real danger period for people. Um, hence, Tierney House was created to give those people uh, an opportunity to come and convalesce somewhere um, and, and have the best opportunity to see through that health plan and, and actually fix that health issue. Mm. And, and how many beds and how long do people stay with you, Cameron? Yeah, we've got 12 beds, nine for men and three for women, which is not representative of what we see out in the community. However, that's the way the bed structure has been, been sorted here at Tierney House. That, that three beds for women... It is quarantine for women. We don't use those beds for men. Should there be more men presenting, we leave them available for women. Uh, mm. Generally, over the eight years, it's, it's bang on what we predicted. The average length of stay is 14.7 days. So, 
I know. <laughs> just point seven days, eh, mate? <laughs> yeah, fourteen point seven days. I just was looking at the statistics today, funnily enough, in preparation, and yes, but there's outliers to that. You know, I think the longest day we've had, and this is the beauty of the service I find anyway, is it's it's flexibility. The longest day we've had was two hundred and eighteen days. Wow. Um, and that was an incredibly complex and very, very unwell young man. So, um, But for everybody that stays beyond that eight, uh, 14 days, there'll be somebody that walks in, stays a night, and then thinks it's not for them and absconds and runs away. So, mm. But that, that flexibility is the key because your cellulitis might appear up with one course of antibiotics, and if it's not, and you're deemed that you, know, you need another course, we'll just extend you another week, 10 days, until such time as you finish that second course and potentially that cellulitis has cleared up. Yeah, look, we're hearing time and time again about flexibility in service models and mm. um, particularly working in home space, this is what works. It must make it really challenging when we start talking to governments and talking about how much funding we need to implement a model when flexibility is such a huge part of it. But, um, you know, that's that's just the nature of the complexity of this area. Yeah, just it really keep, is. They're very individual cases. Every single person that walks through the door, the, the level of complexity and the amount of involvement and the mm. stakeholders that are going to need to be involved varies with every single person that walks through the door. So how do you write a policy or a procedure or fund for that? It's really tricky. Mm, it is. Well, this is where we get to the how do we evaluate effectiveness and we, we, we uh, and, and you and I, Cameron, were involved in getting this going I think a few years back but you had an evaluation of your services done, um, particularly Tenny House, and you had some impressive outcomes. Um, but also, also, you did sort of talk about cost savings to government. So can you tell us a little bit more about these findings that you talked about in your article? Yeah, I mean, the, the evaluation was such an amazing process to go through and, and the outcomes were amazing, not only from a psychosocial perspective, but to, to be able to show people um, dollar amounts of savings um, you, you can't argue with that. I think it worked out to some, just a tick over $8,000 per person and I think it was 315 people that were included in the cohort um, over that calendar year. So, I mean, quick sums, $2.6 million a year, something like mm. that, um, yeah. which, is a, which is a large figure. And that's not even incorporating. The evaluation didn't actually draw out some of the savings that I think it could have. For example... We, we love visitors at Tinney House. We love people dropping in and see, telling us how they're going. So invariably, we will see people who may have been headed for the emergency department and thought, you know what, I'll just pop by a Tinney and have a coffee. And by the time they've sat here for half an hour, 40 minutes, had a cup of soup, had a chat with one of the staff members, they don't longer need to go to the emergency department. Mm. It's an appointment for them at the GP. So those things weren't even picked up in the evaluation. But from a, from a cost-saving perspective, um, it's, it's hard to argue with what the evaluation drew mm. out. So you're almost like a diversion program on top of a residential service. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, John. Yeah, really, we are. And I think that's, that's just one of the beauties of the service as the way it's might not have been something we anticipated eight years ago, but it's, it, it is reality. Mm. It's like you've created a little community and so once person, people, people have had a safe and a positive experience, they feel comfortable coming back absolutely. and just have it having a yarn and that's great. Yeah. Um, all right, so look, we've, we've also talked in this podcast series about partnerships and, and, you know, governments have written policies about partnerships and how they should be done. But you also raised this as a key to the success of your model of care. Yeah. So why are partnerships so important and how do you make them work? 
I think the crucial part is, is, is the plural nature of that word. It's not partnership just with St Vincent de Paul or Mission Australia. It's partnerships, plural, because, mm-hmm. as I stated before, everybody's different. Um, if I if I have a gentleman that walks through the door that's quite happy to stay in Christ for accommodation, now I need that partnership with St Vincent de Paul and Matthew Talbot because that's where he's happy to go to. If I have a mm-hmm. gentleman walk through the door who has more capacity and he's aiming and motivated to live independently in the private rental market, then I'm going to Mission Australia and their home and healthy program. Um, maybe I have somebody that's super complex and needs carers five days a week. I'm looking at Mission Australia for their HASI program. So multiple partnerships so that once I know what the punter is after, after I've formed that relationship, built that rapport, there's an element mm. of trust going on there, then I've heard what he's telling me, I can find the right partner to partner him with. I mm. hope that makes sense. Well, a lot of you no, no, in there, but I think that's, <laughs> I think I got the point across. <laughs> oh, I love it how you call people punters, but it's... um. It is it is about that relationship, the depth of relationship you're creating with people very quickly. I mean, it's you need to get in and, and, and listen to someone's story deeply and then work out how best to support them and, and, and using your networks and partnerships to do that. Yeah, and in order to do that, you need to you need to accept them really quickly. You need to not uh, not not be in judgment of them. You need to be so welcoming that they come in and they can let down some of those barriers. Um, so that they feel that the service is, is one worthy of placing their trust in. Therefore, mm. if uh, they place their trust in us, then we're not going to refer them inappropriately and set them up to fail so that they can then take that trust on to the next people that we're referring them on to. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, look, and from someone's perspective where I sit, and I'm, I'm a little bit more, a little bit of a step away from the coalface, I'm a really big fan of the patient and client stories that you, you people like yourselves and others tell us um, to help you know, tell us that sometimes the frameworks and policies really struggle to. So you've shared a couple of them in your article. Mm. Do you want to pick one to share with our listeners some, a story that um, that you'd like that gives a flavour to what you do and the impact of the kind of service you provide? Yeah, it's really hard. It's always really hard to pick. I think there's a common theme um, in in the stories is that there's there's injustice. Um, and mm. they're the ones that really attract me. We had a, a fellow early on um, who was from the Pacific Islands. He was going out and drinking quite a bit, um, getting some headaches, presented to hospital, um, and he had a tumour the size of your fist in his head. He was only 23 years of age. Um, wow. And he was in hospital so long, um, retrograde amnesia, the whole lot. Couldn't remember where he lived. Um, so we literally jumped in the car he knew the suburb, and I happened to grow up just around from that suburb. So <laughs> myself and his caseworker drove the streets of Belmore until he went, that's the house. Went up, knocked <laughs> on the door, literally knocked on the door. His, his auntie entered the door. Um, we explained to her where he had been for the last six weeks. Um, and she said, oh, well, I thought he wasn't coming back. So I put all his belongings on the council cleanup, including his passport, his birth certificate and all of the like. Oh. Bella, yeah, came to us for, for a stay at Tierney House. Um, it doesn't sound too subacute. We're a non-clinical service. I should have explained that in the beginning. We don't have nurses mm. or doctors at Tierney House. Um, mm. But he came here. He obviously had a lot of follow-up with the hospital, a shunt put in his brain to drain all the fluid after they'd removed the tumour. But then it was mm. all the matter of 
uh, applying for a new passport, a new birth certificate, getting in photo ID, getting linked onto Centrelink, um, getting OTs in place, getting speech pathologists in place. I mean, the, the Visio mind map of all the people that were involved in his uh, care is just extraordinary. And he was here wow. for about four months. And the rewarding part is that he got back to full fitness. Um, this is after... A, Obviously, I went out in the park and kicked a footy ball around with him when he was better and showed him a thing or two, as you do. Um, <laughs> he's, back, he's back working and living independently, and his family have come out from um, the Cook Islands to visit him, and he's living well. And I, I just, mm. there was so much opportunity for that kid just to die on the streets, and nobody would have mm. known why, and nobody would have been able to track his family or anything like that because he had no identification. So, I guess that's one story. The palliative stories, John, which is something we didn't really anticipate um, mm. when we opened, but to have a few people come through here who are palliative and be able to live in this house um, with, 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 well, they call them friends by the end of the by the end of their days, and to be able to share in, you know cooking a meal or, or doing some gardening and then getting the tap on the shoulder by the doctors at Sacred Heart and going over and passing away peacefully with dignity. It's not something I'd anticipated. It's not something the staff had anticipated, but oh, was so rewarding to be able to mm. be a vehicle uh, for that for people. Yeah. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Just, to, just as a side question, Cameron, is, is the model of care being taken up by New, the New South Wales Ministry of Health? And I believe, yeah, I believe it has. But what, I, what I'm hearing is potential for um, a Newcastle and Tweed Head version um, okay. of, of Tini House. So that, look, when, when Anthony Shembury, the Chief Executive at Sydney, came down when he started me, he said, what can I do for you, Cameron? I, passed up. I said to him, please, go and tell all other Chief Executives at hospitals that have a population experiencing homelessness, that they need this model. Um, mm. And it seems like it's coming to fruition because I really, I seriously believe in the model. I seriously believe in the outcomes of the model um, and, and the relationship that builds with the population in, in, a, in a whole city. Um, mm. So, yeah, wherever there's a population like that and there's a hospital they can attach it to, go ahead and do it. It's going to yep. work. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, obviously COVID-19 has been um, the obsession of late um, and uh, it's been a huge impact um, on homeless people. And we've seen, you know, homeless people housed in hotels yeah. in an amazing way. Um, I was keen to ask you about what some of your thoughts were, but particularly in reference to Teeny House, yeah. is COVID-19 and, and, and this kind of pandemic changing the way you think you might need to provide services or... How does Tiny House fit into the COVID-19 scenario and the post-COVID-19? Yeah, so uh, we, we, we've been planning and, and, and scheming and having having all those contingency plans in place for when we have a handful of uh, positive homeless people present. Um, and then mm. we, we had plans for when there were 20 and then 40 and 60 and uh, yep. um, um, base hospitals and tent hospitals and whatever the case may be. Um, and touch wood, we haven't seen it. Um, in mm. fact, we've taken the necessary precautions of screening everybody that comes in, especially those that come from the community as opposed to the hospital. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, we're not having any visitors. We're not having Sister Maureen come and do her mindfulness colouring in. We're not having the boys from Christian Brothers Lewisham come and have their pizza night. So 
So um, if anything, it's a bit quieter around here. Um, however, post-COVID, my, oh, maybe some people call me grandiose, but maybe, <laughs> just maybe, um, a tiny house and a model and this non-clinical model of working uh, with this population whereby they feel comfortable in this environment as opposed to the hospital environment may see an expansion of this type of model. Mm. Oh, oh let's, let's keep that one. Uh, that's all I like that. <laughs> hey. no, that's good. Yeah. It, it, uh, it works. It works. And look, I, I suppose that for those that are listening, I mean, there still is a need for residential homeless services out in the community, but this is very much those with complex health issues. Um, that need this closeness um, to the health service and that's what makes Tini work so well. Yeah. So look, just to finish Cameron, um, look you've already told us some amazing stories but is there any particular encounter or story over your lifetime, because you've been working in this place, space for quite a while, so what inspires you to make a difference? Yeah, I, I was going to get real personal with this answer, John, and say <laughs> that I had um, mental health and drug and alcohol has been a present in my uh, family life for mm. as long as I can remember. Um, and I do recall going <clears throat> going out of my uncle's house to my auntie's granny flat in the backyard um, and wondering why she slept all day. Um, and I just couldn't really work it out, but I didn't know what else to do other than the washing up. So I did the washing up for her, and then I did a load of washing uh, as a ten-year-old and eleven-year-old, and I couldn't. I just couldn't wonder why she wouldn't wake up. As I've come into adulthood, I've found out why. God rest mm. her soul. Um, and I came from a five-star hotel background, so I got to a level in five-star hotels where I thought, I don't really want to help people that can help themselves. I want to help <laughs> people that can't help themselves. So it took mm. a, a five-year sabbatical to go and study psychology by distance education to be able to find myself in the fortunate position where I'm able to help those people through uh, maybe no means of their own um, actually can't help themselves I, it's, it's motivating just to be able to assist them with that advocate for them be a voice for them empower them um, that that in itself is rewarding to be able to see somebody with a stutter uh, be brave enough to pick up the phone and reorder a Medicare card um, because mm -hmm. they put it off for six months because they didn't want to be embarrassed by having to speak on the phone and order a Medicare card. And to be able to see them achieve that, go, wow, good on you. you know? And they go, oh, well, I couldn't have done it if you didn't sit with me. And I went, well, you've done it now. And you'll be able to do it next time. Just mm. examples like that. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's just a small little incidental wins each day that keep you motivated. Oh, brilliant. Cameron, that's just a lovely um, personal story, and thank you for sharing that. That, that, but that it, you, you've just highlighted where um, the passion and energy you bring to your role comes from, and that's so important. So, thank you for sharing that. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate, for having you on the series, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Cheers. Thank you, Mr. Willis, and thank you, Dan. To subscribe to a printed copy of Parity Magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash parity. This podcast series has been developed by St Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod host of incompetech.filmmusic.io.
and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attribution's license. This information, information about our guests and more can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.